hemp production, farmer innovation in the Southeast, and contributing content for distance learning. Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a weekly podcast that looks at issues across the country as reported by our editors. I'm Willie Vogt, your host and editorial director for Farm Progress, and if you hear noise in the background, it's because my home studio is now tucked into what has become an active construction zone. Coronavirus remains at the top of the news, except perhaps for that random talk about the murder hornet, a topic for another podcast perhaps. But agriculture is moving on in many ways, including in areas that were hot news last year, like hemp. We'll visit with Austin Keating with Prairie Farmer Magazine in Illinois to find out what he's learned about this once super hot crop and where it is today. We then head south to talk with Brad Hare of Southeast Farm Press, who shares some insight on how fruit and vegetable growers are trying to market their crop rather than leave it rotting in the field. We wrap up with a visit with Kurt Arns at Nebraska Farmer, who discusses how that brand actually provided local information readers could enjoy, but also offers some history that could have value for distance learning. And he shares his own experience with the issue since his wife is a longtime teacher. First up, let's talk hemp with Austin Keating at Prairie Farmer. Austin, good to catch up with you and perhaps talk about something that isn't directly related to coronavirus. <laughs> um, actually, I think I wanted to talk to you a little bit about a, a crop you've been covering in your role in Illinois. And actually, we talked about it across the Midwest. And that would, of course, be hemp. Can you give me a quick rundown of a couple of the key issues that are still hanging out for hemp after we've been through one full year of it being potentially a crop we can raise? Right. Yeah. So um, USDA came out with hemp rules all the way back in 2014, pilot rules. That sort of governed the growing of hemp for research purposes. Uh, Oregon sort of that Oregon's been growing hemp for five years commercially. So certain states jumped on that stuff early. Um, then come 2019, that's like the first season where Illinois joined in as a growing state. Because uh, in 2018, not only did we pass legalized marijuana, but we also uh, past hemp growing rules and regulations um, that allowed commercial growers to grow it rather than just research purpose growers. Prior to 2019, I think we only had two hemp farmers in the state. Huh. So, does, yeah. does legalizing marijuana along with growing hemp confuse the issue or is that an, is that an issue at all? Yeah, it's interesting. So um, my uh, state senator here in where I live in Coles County, Illinois, which is center of the state. Um, he's made this point that whenever we passed medical marijuana, I think that was years ago, uh, a couple of years ago, the businesses that got on that train, they were losing sort of a lot of money because there weren't enough customers in the medical marijuana space. So they wanted, obviously, everybody else to use the product as well. And so in it becoming legalized, you know, you can't even keep it on the shelves here in Illinois anymore. Apparently, it's just flying off the shelves. It's a it's an essential service even during all this COVID epidemic. So you'll still see lines when you're driving by some of these dispensaries. One of the interesting things here recently in Illinois, they sort of expanded the market for hemp growers who are growing for CBD, which is cannabinoid. It's a type of cannabinoid and and hemp plants, which are also related to marijuana plants. There's also THC, which is one that gets you uh, high, uh, affects your mental abilities and such. What's interesting in Illinois is now CBD growers can sell their biomass to dispensaries and people who make THC products, not just people who only make CBD products. Uh, and that's just an opening up of markets uh, that's happening. 
in certain states that are following different policies. So one of the issues that we ran into is that the hemp growers who came in early in 2019 very exciting, but we got ahead of the processing curve for cannabis oil. Obviously, THC is the part you don't want in hemp. Um, we'll talk about testing in a moment. Didn't we get ahead of the processing curve as well? And that created mm-hmm. some losses. Don't Didn't you cover a story about a person yeah. stuck with a bunch of hemp? Yeah, well, actually, a lot of people are stuck with a bunch of hemp. In fact, I, I know of certain Wisconsin growers who grew hemp for CBD oil in 2018 and they haven't been able to sell their biomass yet. So it's sort of a mess. Um, Definitely growers were entering 2019 thinking they'd make a boatload of money, but really whenever, you know, the 2019 harvest got to market, you know, whenever all these first time states got to market, you know, that sent prices down more than 50% for the biomass, but also the oil got that way because there was already sort of a buildup and that buildup persists to this day. So, you know, you'll you'll find fewer acres of hemp in 2020 than in 2019, or at least that's one what one source uh, speculated with me. Uh, he's from Pan Exchange, which is a price service, a paid pricing service for hemp. Well, we should probably talk about one of the issues with hemp, of course, is that you need to verify that your product in the field is not high in THC or essentially what we would call marijuana. How is that happening? And is is there a standard for testing? Right. So, uh, you know, I mentioned the USDA having rules. So they've passed an interim final rule. Uh, they had public comments on it up till December 20 states have come out and said they will not follow the 2020 interim final rule. They'll continue with their previous permitting and structure, uh, their previous rule structure, which follows the 2014 pilot rules from USDA. What's the point of contention on that? It's It has to do with how you test for THC. So there's uh, active THC, and which is called Delta-9, and uh, there's inactive THC. And, you know, Oregon, which is one of the states who are not following the 2020 interim final rules, has contended you shouldn't have to test for both THCs. You shouldn't heat up a test sample to find what else it has. Because all these samples have to come in below 0.3% THC under federal rules. But exactly how you measure that THC, whether you're measuring deep carboxylated Delta 9 or not, you know, that's the point of contention. Is one more active than the other, or is it just a matter of uh, splitting hairs over the test? It's sort of splitting carrots over the test. Obviously, when you heat up the flour, that THC is going to get released. So, as anybody <laughs> from college knows, if you heat up the flour, never mind. I'm sorry, that passed. <laughs> but you know, uh, it it does. Like one grower I talked with uh, in Delavan, Illinois, um, he would have passed under the USDA rules pretty much, except. For one of his samples, it would have been 0.4%. And then he would have had to burn that crop had Illinois been following those rules in 2019. Uh, But again, the interim rules came out uh, after the 2019 season. And basically, the 20 states are saying we're not going to follow that. 12 are following it. Texas, you know, which is entering their first year growing hemp, they're going to be following it. Iowa, Ohio. Is Illinois going to follow it? No. we're, We're still drafting our rules. Okay. So... Uh, we're we're going to stick to the rules we had in 2020 because, you know, other states are doing it. Um, there was this thinking that potentially states would have to 
followed this interim final rule in 2020, but uh, a lot of states aren't. So. Okay, so what a farmer should know is what the rules are for their state, and that means getting right. in, in yeah. touch with their departments of ag yeah. to make sure if you've decided to, if you've committed to contract crop, and I know that there are also acreage limits and plot limits are still, I think, in effect in some states. Mm-hmm. It depends on your state. But I right, I mean, get with the experts in your state to find out what your rules are and be prepared for that. Right. And if you're wanting to trade across borders between the states, remember, that's where the USDA rules really apply. In particular, you'll find a smokable flower is sort of like the specialty crop. It's not so much it's not the same as cannabinoid produced for CBD oil. It has to be pretty high quality. It's almost akin to food grade Uh that's really where a lot of this testing issue comes up, um, you know. So the testing comes up because of the cannabis oil or the THC? I just want to be clear for the listener. It, it's if you come above 0.03, 0. 0.3% yeah. THC with this testing method that takes in both types of THC into account right. at the federal level. And that affects, you know, if you're trying to trade across states, you get pulled over, what happens? How long? Because they, they 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 won't follow your state's testing regulations, or they they might follow. You know, if you're t- driving through Iowa on your way to Denver to trade your smokable flour, Iowa will be following perhaps the federal standards, test you by the federal standards. Now you have something that tests over 0.3% THC. That's illegal. Has to get burned. You want to avoid that. <laughs> <laughs> so we got two issues going on though. When you talk about smokable flour, that's the yeah. real thing, right? That's mm-hmm. what we would call a narcotic marijuana. And, or it, and it, it looks it looks like it. It it yeah. still wouldn't get you high as much. Okay. Uh, it's it's still bred for that low THC content. Okay. And it had there there are tons of other cannabinoids in THC. Um, like I think there's 23. Yeah. And something that's unique in Illinois is we tax cannabis products by the THC level. So maybe if you bring in more CBD, more of those products the customer pays less and gets a similar feeling rather than paying for 100% THC. And I guess there's some science going on in this, which I'll just tangentially mention that, you know, some of these consumers are wanting these cannabinoids because they believe it activates cannabinoid receptors in their spine. Maybe THC isn't the only thing to do there. There's CBD, there's, uh, there's other cannabinoids that people are interested in right now. Interesting. Well, and that, that's part of this evolving use of this crop, too. And we're still mm-hmm. in the early years of this, what might be legal, what might be valuable and mm-hmm. uh, the processing. And then we get back to even the harvesting of this. I mean, yes. I've had conversations with Agco about gleaner combines being mm-hmm. uh, properly designed to harvest all three parts of the hemp plant, Yeah. Uh, which, you know, we're, that's an interesting concept in itself. From your standpoint, uh, you've been co- talking to a lot of people. It's kind of interesting where you are in your career, too, uh, being uh, uh, one of the more let's just put it this way. There are more legacy people on my team than you. Let's go with that. (laughs) But from the standpoint of where you are in your career, you're at the beginning of this crop with the beginning of your career. It's been interesting for you to follow this. Where do you Mm -hmm. see it going? Do you see it as a potential viable crop for agriculture? Uh, Or do you see a lot of the issues insurmountable? Yeah. So let's go ahead and break down some basic facts here. When you're harvesting hemp. You know, you're harvesting for three separate products, right? Uh, You could be harvesting for CBD biomass, which would be then turned into CBD oil at a processor. 
or you might be harvesting for seeds, or you might be harvesting for fiber. And there's, you know, they're developing varieties to cover all this, you know, and to, there's a lot of innovation happening in harvesting right now. Right now, the preference really among processors for what they take in uh, would be pretty high quality biomass. You grow it on, you know, four to five inch or four to five feet spacings. It, it looks like Christmas trees. You make sure, you know, it's not moldy. You keep up with pests and then you you harvest it. You hand harvest it. You dry it. You know, it's very labor intensive, takes a lot of effort. But uh, I also know farmers who've been able to do sort of a baleage method. So they wrap it up in uh, plastic and store it someplace safe and that prevents mold from forming. And then there's ways to dry biomass without all that labor. And that's what a lot of these processors are experimenting with. But of course there's trade-offs there. You know, whenever you trade quality for drying automatically, drying mechanically, one of my sources told me this, you, you're losing CBD as you're drying mechanically rather than drying with air, hanging them up in these barns. And that's what a lot of these farmers in Illinois did, uh, or anywhere really, is when they're hang drying, they're taking a lot of people and filling up a bunch of barns. And even if it's only five acres, you could be filling up a lot of space and it gets to be too much. So when you see these larger farms, like I talked with the 60 acre hemp farm, you know, they're doing fewer acres now in 2020 because they, they still can't sell some of the product from last year. But there are mechanical ways of doing this. It's just maybe that kind of product isn't necessarily preferred yet because the processors, they want higher contents of CBD than. Yeah, it's, it's a, like you say, it's an evolving market. There's different ways to harvest. Different people are going to want different things. I mean, we can use this stuff for everything from uh, fiber and hemp and concrete to mm. cannabis oil and different. There's different value propositions that have not been set up. It's good to catch up with you on the hemp market. Austin Keating with Prairie Farmer Magazine. Uh, keep following it. We'll catch, check in with you maybe this fall on this very issue to see how this season went. Uh, maybe we'll get some of the stuff raised last year sold before we talk again. You take care and have a great day. All right. Thank you. Well, you learn something every day and we appreciate Austin's insight on the topic of hemp. Moving south, Brad Hare covers southeastern U.S. agriculture where farmers are struggling with the rapid drop in demand. He shares some stories about how these farmers keep moving forward. So Brad, uh, I'm sure you're warmer down in the southeast than I am up here in uh, sunny Minnesota where we're going to have a freeze. Uh, hey, Willis, good to be back. We appreciate the opportunity. Um, we've had good cold temperatures, and, uh, of course, peanuts and cotton have been going in the ground, the dry land. Um, growers are getting pretty hard on that. Of course, the corn, we're at B6, maybe B7, with the corn already B8, so we've got some good stage corn out there. We got a little, we're going to get some of that cold front coming down here this way. It's kind of putting a whiplash on some of us down here in the deep south, but uh, so some of the peanut cotton guys will be watching those soil temperatures. It might uh, hold them up a little bit till we get back to some warmer weather, but right now everything's running pretty strong and looking for some uh, some good crops and good markets to sell them to later. Yeah, later is the operative word on that good market, um, given the coronavirus, the way it's hitting everything. But let's talk about that a little bit. One of the areas you do cover is uh, this, the Florida market. Um, that's been on the national news quite a bit. But what are you learning from those fruit uh, growers and the vegetable growers down there? What What's really happening from your perspective? Well, the way the season usually goes, it did... With the pandemic hit, it, obviously the Florida growers uh, being ahead 
of the season, you know, due to weather and the, and the crop mix of the vegetables. And of course, Florida is a large vegetable producing state. When, uh, you know, when the pandemic hit really hard, you know, the middle part of March, it was hitting them at that time where they were pulling in that first squash, those first zucchinis and stuff like that. And it, the market kind of just dwindled up, you know, when restaurants started closing up and you had the schools closing up. To, just the shift in that logistics just really rippled through the market there. And squash are not going to hold too long. Uh, it's not like you can go store them up like peanuts or cotton or corn or something like that. So they got to move. So unfortunately, several larger growers and made national news had to go in there and kind of plow up what they had but farmers pivot they know how to pivot and pivot well so many of them uh, started turning to social media and uh, just local word of mouth and uh, those growers down in homestead the salt of sons uh, farms started selling directly it was probably about the second or third week in march mm. and uh by the time Easter hit around, they had had a route set up by the local police department to help handle the traffic of uh, local consumers coming directly to their farm to buy fruits and vegetables that they had coming in. Another good friend of ours, you know, is uh, Lewis Taylor Farms with Bill Brim, which is uh, a little farther north of Florida, but right there in Tifton, a very large vegetable producing farm. He told me the actual date he knew it hit the fan was about March 25th, when almost 60, 75 percent of his leafy greens, broccoli, coal crops orders just ceased. They, they just stopped coming in and uh, they had to make some hard decisions on some of their crops at that time. Of course, he has uh, a large force of H2A workers on his farm as well. I mean, he runs a pretty large group there. and But they pivoted as well and started selling directly to consumers and they went from like 300 boxes of mixed fruits and vegetables and also obviously got some Georgia Peanut Commission peanuts in there as well and some blueberries from the local growers. He really started outsourcing to try to uh, share some of that cash flow with some other people as well. But for a $20 box, uh, you could get a lot of uh, produce from him, but they had to pivot, and they went from selling 350 the first Wednesday they started it, almost 1,500 boxes the second Wednesday, and they had a traffic about a mile to a mile and a half from the entrance of their farm with uh, consumers coming there to buy those $20 boxes. And Bill, I have a good picture of Bill that his uh, daughter uh, shared with me. Uh, Bill pretty much uh, sat out there and met everybody that came in there and told <laughs> thank you. It's thankful, and, and, and the community is really turning out, and uh, because they want that produce too. And some of the stores, the grocery stores, grocery shelves, you know, they can't handle all of it and, and it goes away pretty quick. But they're pivoting. Uh, of course, Bill would like to go back to the regular market again you know, with the restaurants open back up and have those bigger retailers buying again. Like he said, we, he's still planting the plant. He's planting, you know, tomatoes and the cukes and he's getting his summer crop in there now. And he was expecting to add to his workforce. Uh, he was going to get another hundred or so HVA workers coming in uh, either this week or next week. Uh, just to bolster that. I mean, it costs me money, but he's he got the plant to keep things going. I mean, you can't just not plant. They're moving forward. And uh, I know Blueberry guys over in Blanche County, which is in part of the other part of Georgia, the, the, the eastern part, Thomas family. It's hit them a little bit hard, too, moving blueberries again. They don't they can't see it. Of course, you can freeze blueberries better than do other crops, and they have a processing to do that, but they're mostly the fresh market. But they started selling locally as well, too, and they've been moving blueberries, and, and they're keeping their workers busy and keeping them on site. And also mentioned that he implemented, has implemented quite the safety protocols as best he can yeah. to keep his workers safe, and they're sanitizing things every day, every other day, two or three times a day. They're just taking extra precautions, which, again, that's an extra cost, but it, at this point, it's what you got to do. Well, let's talk about that for a minute because we know that um, the h program, and we've had a lot of conversations with some of our Farmer of the Year participants. It's got its issues, but on the whole, it's a program that is a reliable supply of workers. But you need to provide housing, and one of the challenges is that uh, we're hearing, and this is happening to the meat plants in the Midwest, is yes, the work site can be a problem, 
but it's not the work site. It's that when that worker goes back overnight somewhere, they're in more close quarters where it's if one person does get sick, it's very difficult to keep it away from everybody else. Are growers, uh, like the guys you talked to, looking at their housing arrangements to see about how they manage that? There's recommendations coming down from CDC and also USDA and places like that that they can adhere to. Obviously, it's a challenge. They're limiting, they're they're actually providing services, and it varies, each operation varies Mm -hmm. differently on how they they go about it, but I can only speak about the ones I've talked to. They're limiting as best they can without being too heavy-handed, the workforce leaving the farm obviously that's one safety measure you can take yeah. there and then uh, providing a grocery service for whatever they may need in town limiting a certain team to go or somebody from the farm management team goes and brings back and again they're also in the housing they're running making sure they got the signs up to say first of it's education too because some of the workers yeah. even in mexico most of our workforce especially in the south southeast comes from uh, the mexico mexico and mm-hmm. They're, they're learning some of this that may not, they didn't know of quite so severely in Mexico, but they're learning and educating. In fact, in Kentucky, there's some growers up there, and I just posted a story on Southeast. Their extensions helping some workers up there with education on how to, how to just educate them on actually what COVID-19 is and how it can spread. And so it's one of those things we're having to deal with on fluid, but I think people are starting to get an idea. And I think I, I don't, I'm, I'm somewhat optimistic. You feel growers are always optimistic, but they feel like they're going to see the other side of this thing, and they're preparing for for that at this point. They're not they're not putting their head in the sand about anything. They're realistic. And I talk, who was I talking to? It might have been Bill, another grower, but you know, we talked about what the normal. Going back to the normal, well, there's no normal. It's just dealing no. with the reality. We'll, we'll 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 go with the reality and make that work. Yeah, we're going to be. I'm probably not going to be shaking many hands at in Moultrie this fall. <laughs> I'm just going to go with that when I come down. Um, just because well, and that's rare for me because that's a handshake and hugging kind of place an event for us but it does change the rules a little bit and we'll be fine it, it will. Yeah. um you know one of the things i i look at uh is what's not on the grocery shelves or how things are flying out and and a couple of areas uh you cover uh as part of the farm pre- farm press team two crops that may be better off be, uh, in the long run through this and that of course be peanuts and rice what are you hearing about those two crops well obviously there's had some challenges with other crops away of course corn and cotton took a really big hit and i feel for my cotton friends they're oh, yeah. really hitting their demand but with peanuts we've we've had over the last couple we've been blessed with you know good crops last year was a little bit difficult with quality but overall we've had a lot of good crop uh, and production and high yields and that's put a little pressure on the market it's been somewhat stuffed so to speak and uh, what we call the carry out or carrying from each year to the next supply has been pretty substantial so it's, it's suppressed uh, growers per ton, which is the minimum, they've been getting maybe 350 to 400 per ton, and that's just you know scraping right there by. They'd rather have 450, 500 would be wonderful. But right now it seems, and I was talking to to Bob Parker, which is the president of the National Peanut Board, uh, last week, uh, a great guy and a good peanut uh, advocate, and Marshall Lamb, who's a friend of ours as well, he's a peanut economist with USDA. Mm-hmm. And the numbers are telling the story that you know exports the first quarter, and we'll see more later in April and May, but exports uh, are up 30 percent, even 25 percent, 35 percent depending on the country they're going to. But peanut butter is, the consumption is also up about, a, you know, 30% compared to this time last year. So you can see that consumers are, are turning to those staple crops, those those trusted staple crops, similar situation for rice. I don't know the exact tonnage of the carryout right now. It's it's leaving me right now, but rice has had a similar situation with, with peanuts as well. But uh, I've heard that some mills in uh, Arkansas are now soliciting uh, growers to plant 
uh, more rice, and that that was not happening last year, year before our year. I mean, in the last couple of years, they haven't been uh, rice millers have not been soliciting acres like they have uh, way back in the past. So that tells you something there that they're they're getting a demand uh, pressure on their side, and they want to supply it. But th- there's some silver lining for those markets as well, and it, it's good to know that we can grow those staple crops, and consumers still know they're out there and they turn to them. And Bob, we he felt like a lot of it stopped piling, but a lot of it's going to get eaten as well. I mean, people are going to get these uh, peanut butters and peanut snacks stuff like that and they'll keep them around and and it'll get eaten and we'll need to have a good crop this year we don't want to oversupply the market again this year uh, marshall warned about that we want to kind of keep keep what we got going here but the 2021 if everything stays whole we're on record per capita for peanuts and rice right now and actually looking to maybe even break some records with peanuts as well if things stay on the trend they are in fact right before i spoke with you now speaking with patrick archer with the american peanut council he's their executive director long time you know 20 25 years in the industry and similar situations they're seeing with their counterparts in uh, that they deal with they have offices overseas as well and and they're seeing an increase in interest too. So there's some opportunities there. Uh, even though this has been an unfortunate, tragic situation, there uh, uh, I think agriculture is going to keep pushing forward, and then these products we make, the people are going to turn to them, and we'll see a light in the tunnel on this at some point. We can just get it to the right markets. That's been the biggest problem in our industry is that we streamlined everything so much that you know we target that restaurant market. So I'm glad that growers are figuring out ways to take advantage of the local and that type of thing. Well, Brad, it's been good talking to you, sir. Um, And uh, we've been talking with Brad Hare. He's the editor of Southeast Farm Press and the executive editor for the Farm Press Group. Take care, stay safe, and I'll look forward to seeing you soon. Yes, sir. Thank you, Willie. We appreciate Brad's insight on what's happening in the Southeast. We're returning to Nebraska this week, and I know we visited with Tyler Harris with Nebraska Farmer last week, but there's more to share. This time, Kurt Ahrens with Nebraska Farmer discusses work he and Harris are doing to help tell Nebraska's story, and their work has value to 4-H and FFA members and perhaps their teachers. Kurt's wife is also a teacher, and he shares some of the issues involved with ramping up distance learning on the fly. So, Kurt, good to catch up with you in uh, Northeast Nebraska. Give me a sense of what's going on right now and what uh, what's happening in your neck of the woods. Well, uh, corn planting's coming along really well. I would say in our neck of the woods, the majority of farmers are finished on corn, getting fired up on soybeans. I think most of the farmers feel really good, especially you know after what it was like a year ago with all of the flooding and, and planting delays. You guys at Nebraska, you're with Nebraska Farmer. You guys at Nebraska Farmer have been doing something kind of interesting. I want to talk about that a little bit. I have been seeing these galleries pop up in your newsletter, and they're they're like virtual tours. Tell me about that, or what drove that idea, and what you're doing. Well, back in March, when most of the schools were the physical facilities at the schools were closed, and students were pushed into online. Uh, learning because of the COVID pandemic. Tyler Harris, the editor of Nebraska Farmer, and myself uh, put our heads together and talked about ways that maybe we could promote additional agricultural education for some of those students that were in quarantine and for teachers as well as 4-H and FFA members and heck, a lot of farmers and ranchers who just like ag history. And uh, over the course of our travels, um, you know, we travel the state every year. We stop at a lot of ag history sites uh, along the way. And we found that we both have pretty good stockpile of really good photos of many of these ag sites that probably have never been published, you know, in, in the magazine or that we haven't used. And so we were able to put together so far four photo galleries and virtual tours of some of the more interesting ag history sites in Nebraska. 
and we believe uh, that it's really gotten a lot of attention and, and gotten some good traffic for us and has provided some information on some ag heritage sites that even Nebraskans didn't know about. What would be the one that Nebraskans didn't really know about that might have surprised you or... or well, I mean, you're familiar with the Stir Museum at Grand Island because we have Husker Harvest Days there every fall, and that's certainly a very popular site in the state. But the one that I probably enjoy the most or enjoyed the most was the Marcus Kane exhibit in Dawes County, which is up in the northern panhandle in the Pine Ridge part of Nebraska. Marcus Kane was kind of uh, an inventor. He was a farmer, and he only had one patent in his entire life in 1927, but he invented literally hundreds of different types of farm equipment that were unique, forward-thinking, painted them his own signature orange color. He would name each piece of machinery after, like, his daughter. Uh, he also put a completion date on each one. And he, you know, he farmed about 4,000 acres of wheat and potatoes in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s in the Pine Ridge, which was a tremendous amount of acres. And so he was always looking for ways to do things better. And he came up with all these kind of interesting types of machinery. And now uh, those pieces are in the Dawes County Museum near Shadron. And uh, about five years ago, before the machinery was even moved into the museum, we got to go out to the farm where the, many of these things were invented by Kane because the family that owns the land now just kept them. And uh, we got a tour of the machinery before it was actually moved into the museum. And then after it was moved to the museum, I had the opportunity to go out and visit uh, the museum and see the interpretation of many of those pieces of machinery. And they're just kind of one of a kind, really tell the history of the Pine Ridge type of agriculture, the High Plains Ag. I think that's probably a spot that many Nebraskans don't really realize exists, but uh, if they have a chance, it's just a neat, neat exhibit. So that's, yeah. that's one of my favorites. Well, it's cool to get ag history, uh, especially now. Uh, we're making history now, of course, but that's a different story. Um, <laughs> but yes, to have this resource and another resource, I know that there's been some aggressive programming, American Farm Bureau Federation as a STEM program. And any way that agriculture mm -hmm. can help provide educational resources to schools that are hungry for accredited pre-made things. Now, in your case, these are just nice resources that a teacher can do if a student was going to have to write a report on the DAW, on something, ag history or inventiveness in agriculture, at least they've got the Dawes Museum to look at, which would be fantastic, that display. That is really cool. I think that's a great idea. And if keep us posted on other ones that are going, I know that you're on their social media. Those listening to you can follow Far uh, Nebraska Farmer on their Facebook page, look them up like the page. And then when these stories come up, you can track them down. They'll be in the social media. You are in an interesting position. We all work from home. We are in farm progress. We have almost all of us have worked from home for a long time. Your wife isn't used to working from home. She's a teacher. <laughs> How is that going? Well, uh, my wife is, a. she's for 25 years, she's been a language arts teacher um, for junior high students. And so she teaches at uh, the local parochial school hometown here. And I can tell, explain to you a little bit how it happened, how this all came about. And it's, it's a similar story that a lot of folks all across the country probably have experienced in that one day the kids went to school and uh, there was a positive case in our county of COVID. And the next day, uh, an email went out, I think that evening yet, about 11 o'clock that night, 
to all the parents that the students would not be returning. At the time, everyone thought that, you know, it would just last a week or two, maybe, you know, less than that. Uh, but it turned out to be, you know, now we're not going back to school this year until fall, at least, and hopefully then. The students had to adjust to that, and the teacher had a huge adjustment because all their lesson plans that they had were for in-classroom instruction. And uh, not that they didn't do online things and use technology in the classroom, but it was a completely different situation. Um, how to help the students that excel, how to help the students that need extra help, you know, without that in-person study hall or being able to just go ask the ask the teacher in person. It's been a, a real adjustment for my wife. Uh, I think I would give hats off to all the teachers out there because uh, they have really stepped up and it's just been a, a difficult, difficult situation um, because everything had to change on a dime and I no one had ever been through this situation before. So it's it's really been a learning experience for everybody and sometimes frustrating, but I think they've really stepped up and, and uh, done a really good job thanks to the technology that we have. You know, you think about it, uh, 20 years ago, this whole online learning thing would not have worked. We wouldn't have had the capability to do the Zoom classroom meetings or even the YouTube videos that my wife learned how to do for specific instruction. And so uh, we're fortunate that we live in the time that we do, but uh, you know, now my wife is a YouTube star, you know, doing language arts uh, studies on YouTube. So I, I tease her about that a little bit. I'm sure it would be interesting maybe to follow up after she's survived this school year, follow up with you, maybe even have her on the call. What about this does she actually like? Because I think we're learning some stuff about education in new ways and how it might change how she teaches when she goes back into the classroom. You're right. And I, one of the things as far as education goes, I tease, tease my children that they'll never have another snow day after this because the teachers <laughs> will always be able to sign uh, and have classroom study, you know, over Zoom or, or one of the platforms that's available. But, you know, I think there's some good things about it because I think many of the um, teachers learned that um, technology can really come in useful in specific ways. And I think a lot of the tech stuff that they're using now is going to carry over when they're able to go back into the classroom. And also um, networking between the teachers during this time, because mm. it's something that I think we forget about that there there's a need for that because they, they help each other, you know, on the same kids. And, and uh, in our school, they're departmentalized. So one teacher teaches language arts, another has science and math, another has history and social studies. And so they have to communicate within each other and they're working on that and doing that through technology. So certainly, uh, there's a lot of lessons being learned, and it'll probably change the classroom forever, I think. I do like the fact that there may never be another snow day. That is, <laughs> that's almost a meme. I'm just saying there's a Facebook <laughs> meme in that somewhere. Well, Kurt Ahrens from Nebraska Farmer, it's been great talking to you today. Keep up the good work. Uh, keep sharing those uh, interesting virtual tours that you guys are putting together. If you have, Do you have more on tap coming for us? Yes, uh, we'll be touring uh, Bessie Tree Nursery, which is one of the oldest uh, continuous tree nurseries uh, in the country, and that's in Nebraska and Nebraska Sandhills. And so we've got a lot of uh, neat tours planned on through the end of May. Well, not only that, now that we know this works, it may be something you keep doing when we get to be able to do more stuff in the future. Always good to talk to you, sir. Have a great day. Thanks for your time. Stay safe. 
Take good care, Willie. Thanks to Austin Keating at Prairie Farmer in Illinois, Brad Hare at Southeast Farm Press, who's based in Georgia, and Kurt Ahrens with Nebraska Farmer for their insights and perspective this week. Your work is helping to keep farmers informed about a range of issues. The entire Farm Progress team is covering the COVID-19 issue from across the country with local insights into what's happening and constructive ideas on actions producers can take to protect themselves and their businesses. That information is starting to appear in our magazines, but you can also find our coverage by visiting farmprogress.com forward slash coronavirus. Again, farmprogress.com forward slash coronavirus. This site section is constantly being updated. You've been listening to Around Farm Progress, our weekly look at agriculture across the United States. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional magazines, as well as Farm Futures, Beef, National Hog Farmer, and Feedstuffs. And of course, the Farm Progress Show and Husker Harvest Days. Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country. I'm Willie Vogt, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening.